Welcome to Terrain Today. Let me ask this question. What exactly was Hamas's objective on October 7th, other than the immediate goal of humiliating the State of Israel through the rampage of craftily executed butchery? They sure must have known full well that their attack and the barbaric, videotaped nature of this attack would trigger an overwhelming response from the IDF. They must have known that under a shock, Israel wouldn't be willing or able to use a scalpel and instead would pummel the civilian targets in Gaza with blunt force. They knew full well that Al Jazeera and social media outlets would show the tragic results of Israel's retaliation and that Israel would be quickly losing friends around the world, not to mention an unprecedented anti-Israeli unity that these developments have forged among the Sunnis and the Shiites and the Turks, even the Turks. So what was the actual strategic objective of the attack, other than instilling fear in every Jewish heart? Was there a gambit to implicate Iran? And if so, then this clearly hasn't worked very well, even though many observers have been trapped into this form of hasty induction a classical form of cognitive distortion. Indeed, it does appear that both Tehran and Qatar were rather surprised by the timing of the attack. It now looks unlikely that Hamas's hope for the conflict to spread widely beyond Gaza was anything but precisely that, a rather vain hope, for now at least. And that's very good news for Israel, but it could be the last one. So, what was the strategic objective that the slaughter committed by Al-Qassam brigades was supposed to achieve? Okay, let's not give these psychopaths that much credit. Let's not call it strategic objective. Let's label it instead intended consequences. And I think we're seeing the first contours of these intended consequences of the October 7 mass murder. This intended consequence was to damage Israel's legitimacy, first as a protector of Jews, and then as a polity equipped with a long-term staying power amid the structural forces that are stacked against us. What are these structural forces? Well, first, obviously, demography. Secondly, the relative loss of global power by the West, which is Israel's traditional backer. Third, the internal struggle to undermine the country's democratic institutions, as if the contagion from the neighbor's autocratic systems could not be stamped. You may say, but who cares about such theorizing? Let's just crush Hamas. And here's a problem. The propensity of a country with limited strategic depth, like Israel, to overuse its military force to handle asymmetric warfare may, at huge political cost, be successful in the short term. But short of a viable political solution for Israel's neighbors, the Zionist project, the entire Zionist project, may be doomed. I shudder at this thought, but this is already beginning to take shape. True, Israel couldn't care less about the demilitarized left-wing snowflakes in Western Europe. However, after decades of the tail wagging the dog, they better care about the young Americans. Day by day, Netanyahu and company are falling deeper and deeper into the trap of Hamas's intended consequences. What started as a bigoted anti-Israeli and, frankly, often anti-Semitic demonstrations organized by leftist K 
cancel culture ideologues, is gaining, with each bomb falling on Gaza's children, more and more legitimacy. A lot what the clique in Tel Aviv has been doing in the last several months has made Jews around the world feel less safe, not more. And this is certainly not improving. Here, on this particular front line, it's Hamas 1, Israel 0. And tragically so. For all those who are just clamoring for justice on one side of the barricade, I'll say this. Whatever the failings of the Israeli state, the responsibility for what happened on October 7 is squarely on the side of the terrorists. And for all those who are duly outraged by innocent civilian deaths in Gaza, but refuse to recognize the pain of the, on the Israeli side, I suggest some comparative math. On October 7th, 1,400 people, most of them civilians, were butchered in Israel. That's in a country of 7.1 million Jews. Compare it to America. Remember how we were paralyzed on 9-11? I couldn't move that day. I was sitting in my bedroom and refused to switch on the TV. On 9-11, 3,000 people died. This 3,000 innocent lives. And 3,000 is arithmetically more than 1,400 on October 7, except it is not more than 1,400, humanely speaking, because every death is mourned with the same spasm in the throat, in the thorax, and the stinging moisture under the eyelids. At the same time, statistically speaking, 3,000 on 9-11 is actually less than 1,400 on October 7, because those 1,400 people were killed out of 7.1 million, and that would be an equivalent of a loss of 66,000 American lives out of a population of 340 million. And guess what? That number, 66,000, is precisely the number of American troops killed in four wars, in Vietnam, in Gulf War, Iraqi War, and Afghanistan War. That is, that many troops, conscripts first and then military professionals. And think what Vietnam did to this country. Or the soft power price that this country continues to pay for the vain, skull-headed stupidity of Bush's Iraqi war. Tragic as it is, this was, on America's side, a story of soldiers who perished over half a century. Just think what would happen to America if, on just one day, 66,000 people were suddenly killed. Many pro-Palestinian groups seem to dismiss this truth outright, and unhelpfully so. But now let's flip the coin for a moment. How many children have been killed by the IDF's bombardment in Gaza? The last number I saw was 4,100, but I may be behind the curve, as I hate to watch those curves, and just like I hated seeing bodies falling from the Twin Towers. So let us do some math again. How many children live in Gaza? Well, about 1.1 million. So that's one child murdered for every 300 kids. Let me bring this number closer to home. I live in New York City, which happens to have exactly the same number of public school students, that is 1.1 million. It's the largest public school system in the country. There are 1,800 schools here, so on average 600 kids per public school. The bombing of Gaza would mean that, so far, each such school would have lost two kids. Actually, two and a quarter, to be exact, and this could be just as well correct, given that some kids' bodies in Gaza have been well, quartered. Imagine the impact on the remaining 598 kids 
in each school when, within just a couple of weeks, not one by two kids from the school were murdered, and the menace of more murder is still hovering over the skies every day and night. Let's push this emotionally disturbing thought experiments a notch further. Let's say that the murderer of these kids didn't really mean to kill those children, but he had to go on a shooting rampage because someone in that neighborhood was responsible for his personal tragedy, the death of his mother, and the disappearance of his daughter. And so he had to shoot. Once, twice, three times. One mistake, another mistake. Oh, just a human shield. Four, five, six, seven. How about 4,100 times? It's wrong. And it's going tragically wrong for Israel's survival. I don't care if we find excuses here. Yeah, right, human shields. Sure thing. That's what Putin said when his troops hit residential housing in eastern Ukraine. Oh yeah, human shields. Careful with your language, Tavarish. A human shield is an oxymoron. A projectile bounces back from a shield, but humans are mostly built from soft tissue. So it's human beings that are murdered, whoever left them there. Of course, I understand the idea of agonizing operational no-choice. But wait a second, do I understand it fully? Why do we fall into this trap and approach it bottom-up, trying to dig out those rats from Al-Qassam brigades and their Gaza holes instead of tackling Hamas top-down instead? We know where they are. They're not in Gaza. The boss is sitting comfortably in some hotel in Qatar. He's so comfortable because Qatar gets access to negotiate the liberation of hostages, and until then, this dude is safe, sort of. But as soon as the hostages have been freed, he and his ilk should be sent straight to their 72 horries in heaven. And what about the other Hamas leaders? They're not in Gaza either. They're in Beirut, and we know where. They're in Damascus, and we know where. Don't tell me it's complicated. In recent years, the US Special Forces completely decapitated Al-Qaeda's leadership, and also liquidated all of the last four caliphs of ISIS. Hundreds of top terrorists have been sent to their horries. Their movements today are faint shadows of the threat that they still represented five years ago. If we could get out Eichmann from halfway across the world, why can't we get these guys out? Somewhat peculiar, don't you think? All this sordid story leaves many people scratching their heads. For nearly two decades, Israel's right-wing politicians badly needed those Hamas spooks to prove that there are no sensible interlocutors in Palestine to negotiate with. And since there is nobody reasonable to negotiate with, well, let's just send more settlers onto the West Bank. Like one happy family, together with Hamas, let's marginalize Fatah, because, well, it's corrupt, right? Yes, corrupt. That's a nice case of projection coming from the ultra-clean Israeli politicians, never speckled with even the tiniest suspicion of graft. And it's getting worse, because short-term political gain is also governing politics here in the United States. House Republicans, ever eager to please Christian Zionists and score cheap electoral points, lobbed a DOA bill at the Senate and the White House. Come on, catch, catch a hot potato! Allegedly offering $14 billion for Israel, but deleting from the bill any humanitarian help for Gaza, any support for Ukraine, for Taiwan, and for the Mexican border. This ain't gonna happen, and it will simply prolong the agony in Eastern Mediterranean, undermining 
Israel's security and its expensive yet imperfect Iron Dome and its ammunition stockpile. Republican politicians' social media posturing must stop at the water edge now. This sorry tale of subterfuge and playing for time is now having tragic consequences. Potentially tragic for Israel, not because it's not possible to actually kick out two million people from their homes. It is possible. It's not tasteful, but it's possible. Over the long arc of the Middle Eastern history, people have moved from one place to another, prodded and flogged by Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Romans, Spaniards, the English, the French, Russians, and finally the Nazis. But none of these solutions proved final, and it's unlikely that this one will. I know, nobody in Tel Aviv cares, because Tel Aviv only cares about the US. After all, Netanyahu built his career around being able to control US Congress, not the Knesset. Remember his trip to the US when he openly snubbed the US president to speak to the Republican-dominated Congress over his head? Well, the bad news is, the median age in the US Senate is now 65 years. And the House median age is 57, with the youngest group less supportive of Tel Aviv, to put it euphemistically. Meanwhile, the US campus median age is, well, what, 22, 23? Where is then Israel's future if its only crutches are some US retirees and maybe the nukes, as a descendant of high-profile Sephardic rabbis recently suggested? And how useful are these nukes against a million Palestinian kids if they are banished to Sinai Desert or somewhere else on Israel's doorstep? This is just ain't gonna work unless real leadership rises from the ashes left by Hamas, by Islamic Jihad, by Sharon and Netanyahu. And for those kids who now rampage around US campuses with their anti-Semitic expletives, I have this to say. Use some of your misplaced energy to set aside those reductionist treaties penned by Michel Foucault some five decades ago. The world is not just a game of power only. Not all human relations can be reduced to a standoff between an oppressor and a victim. I know that, like many polarizations, this black-and-white vision of the world may be cognitively appealing. You identify the victim, and then you identify yourself with it while directing your aggression against the oppressor. The trouble is, given an opportunity, the victims become oppressors and turn other oppressors into victims. Surprised? Again, read up some history, especially history on how humans behave in circumstances of extreme physical threat. It's not a pretty picture. Bruno Bettelheim wrote vividly about Jewish guards in German concentration camps. They behaved as badly as their oppressors, or the Judenpolizei in the ghettos, or even some Judenrate in the ghettos, some of which cooperated in the Holocaust. We may not like this history, but banning its memory will not undo it. Some 5 to 6 million Ukrainian civilians were killed during the Second World War, but some of them also collaborated with Nazi and Soviet oppressors, and others slaughtered tens of thousands of Poles with axes and pickaxes in Volynia, in a very Hamas-like fashion. Then there are the Catholic Poles, some 3 million of which were butchered by Germans and Russians during the war, but among whom there was much scum responsible for countless Jewish deaths, too think on a more micro level, like in South Africa, where black men were often humiliated on a daily basis by their haughty white overlords, only to return to their black townships and serially rape black women there. Solzhenitsyn wrote eloquently about how similar victim-turned-oppressor mechanisms affected certain inmates in the gulag death camps, 
but then he embraced an imperial version of Great Russia's overlordship, whose bloody consequences we are experiencing to this day in Ukraine. Most nations, maybe even all self-identifying groups, need such myths of victims' purity. Palestinians are not unique in this respect. Many of these myths are fake stories to bolster a sense of identity, but they must be logically fake given the ubiquity of evil around the world. True virtue is only possible at the level of a single individual. Once you extend the virtuous claim to an entire collectivity, things get very, very complicated. But the vision of a world that is black and white and really many kin, with the struggle of white purity against the pitch-black evil, is what our minds love so much, this eternal struggle allegedly leading to the final liberation and return to paradise lost. Except, when the liberation comes, the first thing that the hitherto oppressed group does is to become oppressors. This is how all revolutions eventually end. Some leftist writers got it right, not least Antonio Gramsci. But he had time in jail to reflect on this sobering reality. Michel Foucault was probably too busy in San Francisco's gay bathhouses to notice this sad yet eternal truth. In this vision of the world based on the oppressor-victim dualism, there is no room for cooperation, for partnership, love, forgiveness, gratitude, and all the other ubiquitous paradoxes of life that we truly aspire to. And remember that equality is not one of them, because equality of outcome robs us of freedom. And so, in the impossible trinity of the French Revolution, liberté, égalité, fraternité, you can only have two, but never three. So it's time to drop Foucault's convoluted work on inescapable hierarchy and instead read upon, I don't know, Thomas Merton, Elijah Benamozek, J.K. Chesterton, Ben Shlomo Hamairi, Urs von Balthasar, Moses Mendelssohn. Of course, I'm dreaming. The neo-Marxist college faculty might not necessarily ban their works, but they'll make sure that these works are deeply tucked behind the obligatory canon of Marx, Sartre, Nietzsche, and Foucault. Sad indeed. Last week I listened to uh, Condi Rice on a call organized by Morgan Stanley. A well-informed woman surprised me by falling into a rather simplistic dogma that Iran is pushing Hezbollah to attack Israel. I don't have any deep intelligence sources in Tehran, but I'm not sure that Condoleezza is reading this right. Why would it be in Iran's interest to do something precisely now, just like five minutes from having a bomb? Iranian rulers don't have to be smarter than we give them credit for, but they have adopted rationality that, unfortunately for us, and for their repressed urban population, has served them pretty well over the years. I don't really see why our reasoning should be hijacked by this procession of Iranian red herrings over and over again. It was a nice toy to have for Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz, but it's a different world in which Russia could still reach the Polish border at a time when China would be busy snuffing out our 7th fleet. So, let me start first and foremost where I do agree with the conventional wisdom in the US regarding Iranian political culture. Their culture is profoundly Manichaean, and more so than the culture of US colleges. In fact, it has been so for thousands of years. When you visit Iran's monuments, monuments to their Zoroastrian history, and in particular the vestiges of pre-Muslim Sasanian dynasty, 
Then you quickly notice the visual representation of the eternal struggle between the cosmic good and the cosmic evil, between Ahura Mazda and Ahriman. On those sunbathed reliefs picturing that cosmic duel, there is often some space devoted to a mundane reflection of this struggle. This is the struggle of good, in the first person plural, versus the evil incarnate, down here in this life. For Ardashir, the first Sasanian king, the evil incarnate were the Parthians, erstwhile rulers of Persia who had fought lengthy wars against the Roman legions. In one famous relief, Ardashir receives the ring of power from god Ahura Mazda. But with Parthians vanishing from history, someone else had to appear as the new evil incarnate to fulfill the mundane reflection of this cosmic struggle. For Persia, Romans continued to fulfill that role, then the Byzantines and then Arabs. Following Iran's slow conversion into Islam is the Sunnis who became Shiite Iran's necessary alter ego. Shism, which was for centuries a form of folk opposition to oppression, was in the 16th century turned by the Safavids into a state religion, an official ideology in the struggle against Ottoman Turks, a Sunni empire. As Richard Kapuscinski evocatively put it in his Shahin Shah, the Shiites would forever thrive in a struggle, though not at work, not at building. Their calling was acting against some vile incarnation of that evil cosmic force, whether it's the pro-Western regime of Shah Reza Pahlavi, whether it's Saddam Hussein or America or the Taliban or ISIS or Israel. To its subject, the theocratic regime in Tehran does not have all that much to offer. Certainly not much prosperity. But, just like Putin, just like Kim, and just like increasingly Xi Jinping, the Mullahs know what the very concept of struggle against evil brings. The solace of belonging. People want to belong. To identify themselves with a project. A sense of tribal solidarity and quest for something greater. Such a project could be positivist, or better yet, revolutionary turned positivist, like Magnitogorsk Steelworks in the USSR, or Three Gorges Dam in the PRC, but nothing quite comparable in contemporary Iran. Short of such positive projects, you need to turn their potential of tribal solidarity as a spear against the other. The evil other. The mullahs understand that idea of struggle against evil incarnate, and they know that it will invariably bring people together. Of course, much of the post-revolutionary Iran's fixation on Israel is purely utilitarian. It allows Iran to burnish its Islamic credentials in the ocean of the hostile Sunni world. Iran simply needs Israel to exist as a rallying scarecrow for its population and as a soothing balm for the Arab-Sunni minority that, without this conflict, may question the Mullah's legitimacy. In other words, it's in Tehran's vital interest to keep this conflict open-ended. Hezbollah's role in this game is no different from the roles we usually ascribe to the nukes. The nukes are not there to be used, they are there to deter. Iran, mindful of Saddam's, Gaddafi's, and Ukraine's fate, but also cognizant of the role that nukes play in North Korea's, Pakistan's, and Russia's self-defined sovereignty, is unlikely to ever abandon the program, no matter how many scientists are turned into martyrs by the Mossad. The nukes would make Iran feel safe, and until then, Tehran needs Hezbollah as a tripwire for Israel to stumble against. For all its alleged missile prowess, 
Hezbollah is really just an argument in Iran's self-defense, not a realistic invasion force against Israel. In other words, Iran needs Israel for political reasons, but it hedges its bets by using Hezbollah as a deterrence. The war of 2006 in southern Lebanon showed that Tehran's calculations are not that far off the mark, and Hezbollah itself now has too much to lose to engineer any large-scale action against Israel. It has economic interests in maintaining the status quo, not only in Lebanon, but also in Syria, where it bolsters Alawite's precarious position. Let us not forget that Hezbollah participated in the central Syrian campaign, which was victorious against ISIS in 2017, and was strengthened by that experience both militarily and economically. Now it runs successful businesses around the largely broken polity of Lebanon, where it offers social services that this confessionally segregated statelet is unable to deliver. It would need a lot of prodding to execute something major and potentially suicidal against Israel. So let us not be surprised that when Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, spoke last Friday in Lebanon, the dollar fell, oil price dropped, and the markets briefed. To our eyes, Nasrallah looks like yet another screaming firebrand, right, with his raised index finger. And he has many predecessors, from Stalin to Castro to P.W. Bota in South Africa to Putin. But here ends the ridicule. In his televised speech, Nasrallah warned the Hezbollah's martyrs killed by the IDF in southern Lebanon, and that was just about it. Except one thing, he admitted that everyone was surprised by Hamas's action on October 7th. Should I believe him? Maybe not. But then again, it took him a month to react. I mentioned on this podcast long ago that there is no love lost between the two organizations. And the US intelligence, contrary to some incendiary comments on the right, found no evidence of direct linkage between Iran and the timing of the murderous actions by Al-Qassam brigades. And how would it be otherwise? After all, they fought on opposite sides in the Syrian war. But then you turn the argument around and ask, well, if the Iranian regime really needs Israel for its survival, doesn't Israeli right also need Iran for precisely the same reason as a scarecrow? The second argument I have against Condoleezza Rice's claim of Iran's involvement is that direct implication would expose Tehran to an open conflict. And that's not what Iran usually does. What does it do instead? It does irregular warfare, and is pretty good at that. Think Qasem Soleimani, the head of Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force, who was assassinated in early 2020 by a U.S. drone near Baghdad airport. Soleimani perfected Iran's art of irregular warfare, having witnessed the carnage of the war against Saddam Hussein in 1980. Back then, he participated in heavy fighting in Khuzestan around the city of Bostan, and lost many friends in a sort of a kamikaze-style human wave attacks on Iraqi positions. He then vowed to devote his energy to non-classic warfare, as they call it, this is how irregular operations started. Quds Force was created in 1998, and uh, they were initially used against the Taliban in Afghanistan. After 9-11, the U.S. finished the job there, but the subsequent civil wars in Iraq and Syria gave impetus to the strategy, and the Quds Force trained and equipped some 55,000 forces from Hezbollah, from Iraq, and from other countries. So this kind of preferable to train other people's forces for a proxy war than to lose half a million martyrs as during the Iran-Iraqi war in a bloody conventional conflict 
martyrs that are to this day deplored in the Ashura holiday of mourning. Iranians are just too good at mourning to forget this, and they are too slight to abandon the strategy of fighting through proxies, not directly. But here is a catch. In addition to some low-level courtesy fire exchange in southern Lebanon, it's the Yemeni Houthis that have launched some serious missiles towards Israel. Towards because the distance from the medieval Manhattan of Sana'a in, in Yemen to Tel Aviv is something like 1,500 miles, and the hapless projectile has to fly either over the Red Sea or over Hejaz in Saudi Arabia. In the first case, 19 missiles were intercepted by one U.S. Navy-guided missile destroyer. Suck on this, Xi Jinping. The rest were apparently stopped by uh, Saudi air defense. But what is surprising is the amazing firepower that the Houthis command. Armed by Iran, this group of seasoned fighters, seasoned with salt and pepper of four decades of warfare, has access to cruise missiles and ballistic missiles, to raiders, to loitering munitions, to UAVs of, you know, 1400 kilometer range, heavy tanks and F-5 fighter jets. And this is a non-state actor, a militia, as we used to call them, but armed with the thorniest of asymmetric tools. These unrecognized rulers of North Yemen are armed to their teeth, to the level that many rich European nations could only dream of. The tyranny of distance means that they will struggle to reach Israel, but following the attacks on October the 7th, it was the street of Sana'a that was really galvanized by the largest pro-Palestinian demonstration, not the streets of Amman, Beirut, Damascus, much less Cairo. Which brings us to the fascinating topic of spheres of influence. By controlling North Yemen, by far the most populous nation of the Arabian Peninsula, Tehran has closed in on Saudi Arabia with pincers. North of the kingdom, Iran controls what is usually described as an arc, but the Iranians themselves refer to as Wilayat Imam Ali, the province of Imam Ali, the first imam for the Shiites. It includes much of Iraq, most of southern Syria, and the key assets of Lebanon. It's a result of America's misguided adventure in Iraq and a result of Iranian proxies crushing ISIS. Remember that Israel never fought against ISIS because, mysteriously, ISIS never posed any threat to Israel and focused its bloody Salafist designs on Shiites first and Christians and Kurds second. But why is Iran so obsessed about this sphere of influence? I think that this goes much deeper into the Persian psyche. When I traveled there, I had the privilege of engaging in conversations with several locals, from pious worshippers to small business owners, from educated mullahs to secular historians turned tourist guides, and I tried to get a better insight into how Iranians perceived the role of their country in the region. Even those critical anti-regime voices suddenly changed the tone when I asked about Lebanon or Yemen. Yes, I was told, we fully support our government. Why? I asked. Well, because they are our Shia brethren and Iran has to protect them. This answer is only partly satisfactory because there are differences between Iran's dominant 12 Shia, uh, the Syrian Alawites or the Yemeni Zaidiyah. The Yemeni worship the great-grandson of the fourth caliph, which is the first imam in the eyes of most Shia, but the 12 Shia do not recognize the first four caliphs, while the Yemeni Zaidiyah do. But there is a deeper meaning to this mental map that Iranians obsess about. Look at the map of the Sasanian Empire, the Persian Empire that existed between the 3rd and 7th century, and infamously enslaved Valerian, a Roman emperor. 
For most of its existence, this empire extended to Caucasus, thus incorporating historical Armenia and today's Azerbaijan. It also enveloped the Persian Gulf, back then better known for pearl diving than oil and gas drilling. And crucially, it included Yemen on the other side of the Arabian Peninsula. Yes, Yemen was part of the Sasanian Empire, long before Muhammad stampeded across the region. In the early 7th century, the Sasanians also controlled what was formerly the Roman territory, with Egypt, Israel, today's Lebanon, Syria, and even parts of Anatolia. And this mental map, however elusive and evanescent it may be, is present in the minds of many Iranians. Of course, the much older Persian Achaemenid Empire, known to us from the Bible and the fact that Emperor Cyrus the Great liberated Jews from Babylonian captivity, extended further out to Central Asia and to the coastlines of today's Bulgaria, Romania, and Ukraine, including Crimea. So we have this imperial history, and we have Iran's pious population who remain convinced that they have the responsibility to protect their co-religionists. This way, cruise missiles, Shahid drones, and F-5 aircraft end up in the hands of what we call a militia in Yemen or in Lebanon. Gone are the days of the grainy footage of Yasir Arafat handing over Kalashnikovs. Welcome instead to computer engineers steering unmanned aerial vehicles from a safe distance. That's how Iran defines and protects its sphere of influence, in the most classical sense of the term. As a Turkish diplomat once stated, old empires never die. Which is not entirely true if we think of Rome, Alexander's Empire, Byzantium, the Aztec Empire, colonial Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands, or even Britain. But it's certainly the case of Persia, China, Russia, and possibly even Turkey. This Iranian arc is a classic case of sphere of influence. I actually tend to distinguish between spheres of influence, spheres of control, and zones of influence. More about it and the profound differences between these terms next week. Before I leave you, let us sing along a familiar tune by Scott McKenzie. If Xi Jinping is going to San Francisco, will he put some flowers into his wig? I wonder. Uh, the pretty face has been so hard to get. Is it security? Well, it's true that top communists in China's ruling party and, and its military echelons have been busy, very busy, disappearing, vanishing, evaporating, or dying in swimming pools. China's interim foreign minister, Wang Yi, recently visited Washington and warned that his boss's road to San Francisco is bumpy. Though I don't recall that line in Scott McKenzie's Flower Power Doggerel, um, one wonders, what is the spectacle that the communists are concocting this time? It's a question worth asking because lower-level meetings between the U.S. and communist officials didn't go particularly smoothly this year. When Lloyd Austin was in Singapore in May, the Chinese side didn't let him meet with the Minister of Defense, who uh, has also vanished since then, by the way. When John Kerry was in Beijing to discuss climate change, Xi Jinping refused to see him and instead held a speech claiming that China will not stoop to any foreign demands regarding its energy policy. And when Gina Raimondo was in Beijing to discuss commercial ties, China made sure that its new Huawei gizmo was paraded in the media uh, with its 7 nanometers chip, allegedly made by local state-owned maker SMIC, all in the face of Gina Raimondo's department's efforts to constrain U.S. technology leakers to China. Says who that China cares about saving face? It's more like, come for a brunch 
and I'll make you lose face, or as Chinese say, For all those who say that these antics are just destined for the domestic audience, and reply that whatever the message is, it also sends a signal to China's foreign counterparts. Of course, it could get worse, like in the case of Xi Jinping's uh, past visits to New Delhi, which were accompanied by a drumbeat of new maps, claiming more and more regions of India as an inherent part of China. So what antics will Winnie the Pooh wheel out in Grateful Dead's hometown? A new map of, well, what, Alaska? A claim on Guam, maybe, clearly. Guam, an inherent part of China forever. Or maybe an MP3 recording of the first bombs falling on Taipei. We shall see, I guess. Have a great week. We'll meet again next Wednesday.